All right, guys, uh, welcome to our first, I guess it's not really our first, but our new community meetings. Um, we're going to be having these weekly uh, to discuss kind of what's going on with the FPVFC, um, but more importantly, what's going on out in the grand wide world of the FAA and what we're working on in, in that respect. So, um, and a big part of this is going to be open discussion. Uh, about some of the, uh, for lack of a better term, pain points at which we're all experiencing in the hobby. So um, <clears throat> I do ask that you know you guys chime in whenever you feel uh, you got something to say, and uh, that way we can kind of understand where you guys are at and what we need to do to go forward. Um, so if there's any questions on that, feel free to hit me up. You can type in the chat. You can just chime in whatever you want. Um, there's not some, you know, any kind of format that we're going to be adhering to with certain time for for um, any questions after the presentation or anything like that. And I'd like to keep this as fluid as possible. So um, <clears throat> first off, I'd like to, you know, it's been a while since we've uh, kind of let the community know where we're at. So Right now, um, we are filed um, the, uh, for our 501c3. Um, we are waiting on a response back on that. And with the government shutdown, obviously, there's bound to be some delays with that. So once we get that, we can move on to the road of uh, petitioning to become a community-based organization through which we can uh, interact with the FAA on a more, uh, I guess, peer-to-peer -peer level. So. Um, that's the big news. A uh, couple things that we've got going on besides that. We've got, um, we just opened up, uh, actually, uh, Stymie here opened up our um, different social media accounts. So we have Pinterest, Twitter. Uh, we even have a Twitch stream now. So um, hopefully we'll get that moving forward here pretty quick. And maybe we can do some of these meetings in a Twitch format. Um, we've got, uh, uh, obviously, the Facebook channel um and uh let's see what else uh we've got uh some fundraising merch uh that will shortly be available after we become a 501c3 uh the website will launch alongside of that and uh there's a huge repository of knowledge that we've been working on to uh on the website to help you guys out so um that's pretty much where we're at at this point um, and, uh, we've also identified, uh, some collaboration points through which, uh, we think we can, uh, make an impact for the hobby. And I want to cover those real quick and I can go into those, uh, on a much greater detail, uh, you know, as we do more and more of these meetings, but we've kind of organized this in a way that we can, uh, identify the upcoming deadlines uh, as put forth in the new FAA reauthorization um, and kind of hit those in a on a case-by-case -case basis as those deadlines come up. So a couple of them, obviously, is going to be uh, remote identification policies. Um, and that's going to be the major topic of our discussion tonight is remote ID. And there's a reason for that, which I'll get into here in a little bit. Um, we want to help uh, develop the knowledge test um, through which 
you know, we know it's coming. Uh, we want to make sure that it works for our community, uh, where it's not just a bunch of aeronautical knowledge that we don't use on a day-to-day -day basis when we fly. We want to make sure it's it's actually relevant for our hobby. Um, we have an upcoming identification of no-fly zones in which the FAA is going to deem certain areas um, off limits for flight. And the majority of those are probably going to be like um, uh, facilities, like power generation facilities, water treatment facilities, um, government uh locations like air force bases and and whatnot stadiums when they're occupied um that kind of stuff but we want to kind of partner with them to make sure that they're not over overly uh marginalizing our airspace um another one would be flight limitations um determining you know the fa is is bound to uh set forth rules on what a safe operations are with uh with multi-rotors, with fixed-wing aircraft, how fast can they go? Obviously, altitude is one we want to kind of tackle. Beyond visual line of sight, what's that going to take for us to be able to do that legally? Um, are there going to be exceptions for racing, for, for quad racing or fixed-wing racing? Um, spotters is going to be in there. Um, another one would be uh, enforcement and law enforcement education, making sure that the people who I'm sure the FAA is going to be leaning on to enforce their their rules, um, making sure they're informed and helping to educate um, those folks. Uh, a big one for me, and I know for a lot of people, is realistic data collection on UAS sightings, uh, making sure that there's a, a way for... Stymie, can you help poor, spout, poor sport to jump in um anyway back on this uh making sure that the faa and and the people who are reporting drone sightings and i do that with air quotes here um making sure that uh, they're reporting this stuff factually and that they're not just saying it's a drone because you know somebody saw something in the sky you know we've all seen the meme where uh, a plastic bag is floating in the sky and we're calling it a drone so a way for them to um, truthfully say that, you know, a drone was sighted, you know, where it shouldn't have been. Uh, another big one for flight and flight restrictions would be privacy. Um, a lot of states right now are looking at privacy laws in terms of um, drones. Uh, so making sure that we kind of nip that in the bud as much as possible. Um, educational programs for the community. Um, one of the big things that we've kind of thought about and we're, we're still trying to put it together would be um, being able for the, having a way for the community to respond to public safety threats, um, a way that we can uh, volunteer with local law enforcement, that we can, um, you know, help out in terms of, you know, could be, uh, <laughs> a way for us to be able to help out during wildfires and floods and and whatnot but even more so uh you know let's look at gatwick had that been a drone what can we do to help uh, mitigate issues like that if we're responding um if we respond if the community is responding to those events then it casts a positive light on something that would uh be a uh 
be a negative. Um, so that's kind of the stuff that we're identifying that uh, we can help work with the FAA on. Um, I think that's a, a pretty big deal. Um, and I think that we can definitely make an impact for those areas for the community. So um, anywho, uh, one of the big points that um, I wanted to cover today was the topic of remote ID. And I want to talk about that because there's a lot of upcoming changes that will happen based on the development of remote ID. So one of the big ones, if anybody's familiar with, and I'm going to drop in um, this real quick. Give me one second. In that link, you're going to find, uh, these are all the recent UAS initiatives uh, from the FAA website. And uh, two of them are going to be the operation of small unmanned aircraft over people and safe and secure operations of small unmanned aircraft. And um, the two of these are reliant on remote ID. In, in other words, they are not going to allow this stuff to happen without remote ID being a distinct possibility. So um, on the topic of remote ID, um, talk to me about where you guys feel like. And Dave, you chime in? Yeah, I was uh, just going to add that those um, all of the uh, those uh, new rules that the that Josh just pointed out are for 107 operators. So what we're seeing is a, a focus from the FAA on uh, 107 uh, certificate uh, holders, and uh, and then they're you know, yielding our privileges uh, to those folks. So we we see that this is. Uh, the focus that, that the FAA is starting also for uh, uh, the remote identification uh, RFI that they've uh, put out. When you say remote ID, maybe we want to jump back a little bit and try to explain in more detail exactly what, what that is and why it, it's come up so much. Yeah, we could definitely do that. So obviously remote ID is going to be a way for uh, – well, let me let me jump back a little further. So the FAA is developing a unmanned tra or UAS traffic management. Um, it's a way. It's similar to air traffic controllers, where they can track what drones are in the air, where they're going, what they're doing, that kind of thing. Um, now, for the essence of beyond visual line of sight, remote ID is something that they're deeming necessary. And this this comes into play, especially for the Amazons and the Walmarts and and these people that want to do um, deliveries via drone. Now, um, these these commercial entities would put remote ID in their units um, when these when they want to do this delivery kind of stuff, or it could even come down to um, for 107 pilots when they're doing their photography, they're doing their real estate work, they're mapping land, they're doing agricultural um, kind of stuff so that they can track where these um, where these uh, unmanned aircraft are and they can notify others to, or notify general aviation aircraft to um, stay out of the way or, you know, whatever the case may be. So yes, these NPRMs are for 107. Um, but I, on the flip side, I think that 
with these changes to 107, we're going to start seeing some of these changes roll out to the hobby airspace too. Um, so, Dave? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And that's that's to me the direction that, uh, that it looks like is that the uh, FAA is giving privileges to 107 accredited operators. And uh, there's a, a view that uh, the hobbyist uh, currently under Section 349 is are going to uh, be falling under a, more and more 107 requirements. Anybody else? Have they actually said what the what they're going to use for, for some kind of tags? That I mean, how is it? Uh, I don't understand. If stuff that's so small and has such like a low lift capacity or weight capacity. I mean, what do they expect that's going to travel over tons and tons of miles? Is it just something that's similar to a beacon on like a general AV? So right now, um, one of the big things that's going on is there's a bunch of, uh, and Dave can probably speak a little bit more about this. Um, there's a bunch of companies that are competing for basically a government contract for remote identification. And uh, Dave, can you chime in a little more on that for me? I, I can. There are two uh, technologies that uh, there was a an RFI that was due to the FFA on February 4th. They gave 60 days for it. And there are two competing technologies that have been submitted that we're aware of. Uh, we don't know what all was submitted as of uh, February 4th, but we do know at least these these two. Uh, and the two, uh, D DJI is advocating uh, more of a, uh, a transponder type of uh, device that uh, communicates information only to uh, authorities. Uh, and they're uh, interested in that so that they are not subjecting uh, their customers to uh, broad-based uh, information uh, from you know people who are angry that there's a, a phantom flying over their house. Uh, and then the combination of uh, Wing, the uh, uh, Google or Alphabet company, AirMap and uh, Kitty Hawk are, have put together a network-based capability that has, uh, um, uh, if, you, if you just look on uh, Google, what Wing is doing, you can see their technology and, and they're calling it uh, inter-USS. And so that's a, a capability that has uh, more, um, uh, the, the information stays with the network for some uh, period of time. So a, a different type of technology, but one uh, in uh, all instances, uh, right, I should, starting over, all instances are, uh, are capabilities that will be uh, outsourced from the FAA. So they will be communicating with air traffic control but they will be uh, separate in the sense that there'll be pockets that will be uh, you know, run uh, across the country. And the, the, a quick breakdown would be the major difference is, is the one, one that's being advocated for by DJI is private, available only to law enforcement, while the one by Kitty Hawk and uh, AirMap and what was the other one? Wing. Wing, yes. Um, that one is not necessarily as private it's going to be open to the general public for them to be able to see right um so there's a, a little bit of a lack of privacy there and again you know this is 
this is for commercial. This is, you know, part 107, and this is going to be for these commercial entities. But that doesn't preclude the the FAA's ability to roll something similar like that out to the hobby community. So go ahead. All right. No, I, I'm just like I'm not so much worried about the privacy aspect of it on our end. I mean, we gonna we're gonna kind of have to worry about that anyways. I guess at that point, even if you have your 107, I mean, people can go and find out if you have it. I'm more worried about uh, as far as interference or anything like that. Like, I mean, if it's a transponder, it's putting out some kind of a frequency. And what's that going to do for everything else that we have going on electric, electrical wise? That's a fair point and definitely one that. Uh, needs to be considered. Um, I, I think it all de determines on what kind of technology they are going to use and what kind of signals they're going to be broadcasting. You know, if they're generally, you know, we're already operating, you know, and I, I use this loosely, but most people are already operating on 5.8 and 2.4. Um, you know, if we're if we're talking about in the lower you know, megahertz, then, you know, we should be okay. But again, there's going to be need, there's going to need to be some testing on that kind of stuff. So. And DJI is advocating an idea that uh, uh, was brought up in, in our discussions, which was interleaving uh, packets of data that, you know, met in the metadata. The, the position that, that we want to take forward to the FAA is uh, one in progression. One where, where you know, the first is we would like to continue uh, the section 349 that allows for an exception to uh, remote identification to hobbyist. And if that uh, doesn't happen, then we would like to minimize the amount of private information that we're communicating. Uh, certainly uh, create things like categories, like this is a hobbyist uh, UAS, this is a commercial UAS, this is a law enforcement UAS, so that that type of information uh, you know, could be available publicly. So we're trying to do this in a stepwise uh, manner in, in terms of the FPVFC uh, position that, uh, that we take forward. And ideally, if we could reuse the existing equipment we have to broadcast those signals so there's no additional cost or weight or anything like that, that would be even better. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we don't have enough arts to put something else on. Um, right. I almost think that we should almost advocate for it now to do it instead of letting them come to the hobbyist and say, this is what you have to do. Oh, without a doubt. And uh, to that end, uh, in order to represent a, uh, a group uh, you know, under the national airspace, we need to be a community-based organization. In order to be in a community-based organization, you have to be an IRS-approved nonprofit organization. So that's exactly what we're doing, and that's what Josh was talking about uh, earlier when that we've submitted the uh, 501c3. Um, uh, application. Uh, so then the idea is to go to the FAA in, in a number of different uh, 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 points, another, a number of different individuals, one being the Drone Advisory Committee, and offer uh, the information and things that we've got in hand, such as uh, in the 2018 reauthorization, there was a statement about 
that in order to uh, for a pilot to operate under a, a CBO, there has to be a knowledge exam. So we'll, we're assembling a, an exam so that we bring to the table a position, a view, something helpful and collaborative, and then we're very we're hopeful that we can start the discussion on a number of points that uh, that Josh was touching on in terms of the various points of collaboration with the FAA. So absolutely agree to be proactive, not reactive. And you know we've we've come up with a couple ideas, and and granted they are right now they are ideas um, of ways that uh, we can reuse existing technologies to kind of act as a a lower form of remote identification, um, one that protects privacy and, um, and and really only is relevant in the case of an emergency in which law enforcement needs to identify a drone or, you know, um, there's some kind of issue they can locate either the drone or the operator, you know, and, and I think they're both feasible ideas. I think both the ideas are very feasible. Um, but it, it still warrants some further development, but it's an idea that we can come to the FAA and say, you know, first off, we want to be excluded from a remote ID. Barring that, if we, if we have to uh, utilize some form of remote ID, we're going to posit these forward and say, you know, this works as a, as a lower form using existing technology that doesn't need to, um, we don't need to add anything to an already, you know, taxed aircraft. Uh, we don't need to add weight. We don't need to add any more uh, technology beyond doing a firmware update. Um, so that's some of the ideas we've got. Um, I don't want to dive deep into it just yet, but um, I think we've got, uh, you know, and that's where Dave was going with the progression. We, we've we got, okay, first we're going to do this. Then we've got these ideas um, so that we're not adding, number one, a cost burden to the community. And number two, you know, something else that we got to add that we have to add. And you have to have one of these for every aircraft you want to fly. And do you want to just hot swap them or do you want to um, have one for every aircraft? And again, that becomes a cost burden. So, you know, just a couple ideas um, on that. So any other thoughts? Have there been any questions or any sort of conversations about the underlying infrastructure that would be needed to support something like this? Uh, when you talk about, you know, sending data around through the air, you have to have a fairly wide net of receiving towers or beings of some sort to take in that information in order to, to aggregate it. Absolutely. So um, I, one of the things that uh, they have been testing, and there's been live tests, I know, in England uh, that we were kind of watching of the UTM network where they were tracking drones, you know, doing their thing, going on deliveries and uh, flying about. And it, uh, so, and a lot of that is being privatized. So there are companies that are developing UTM facilities uh, around the United States to help um, mitigate some of that for the FAA. And so the, the, you're right on point on that question with respect to the two competing ideas about the uh, unmanned traffic management, which is the network which would necessitate some uh, level of uh, database and storage. And the word I, that was uh, missing me uh, earlier was persistence of the data. So there, you know, what, how, uh, how long do you want to retain this information of a, uh, of a UAS flight? And that's where I would rather have a 
uh, a transponder, then it broadcasts their local devices. Uh, you can, if you're law enforcement, you can pick it up. Uh, and of course, they're thinking of their own equipment, the DJI scope, and you know, which is positive from a perspective of you know limiting the persistence. Uh, and then exactly to your point, uh, which is the uh, the necessity of a, uh, a managing, uh, if not uh, a, an entire you know, one network for the entire country, uh, multiple grids that would pick up uh, locales. So yeah, fair amount, and that's the. A lot of this is what's contained in the uh, request for information uh, that the FAA put out with a due date of uh, this past February 4. I got a kind of an idea that could be put out, I guess. Um, uh, we're, we're flying stuff that's, you know, pretty much under, set, let's say, um, what about just giving the idea, okay, if somebody's out here, why not just have a little, and all you do is just hit a band scanner and it'll pick up the channel. You could see exactly where they are and then just require head on it so they can say, okay, that's this person. That's, it's that, it's, it's right there on the OSD. We can see it on the video. We can see exactly where they are, where they're flying, what they're doing. I think the, the desire is to go one step further, and that is to be able to um, have the operator identify either themselves or the, or the device. And so uh, this is uh, from a, uh, as uh, we've been reminded, there, there are two aspects that the FAA is always thinking about, one security and the other safety. And so this is absolutely in the safety uh, uh, realm that they're, they, they want to know you know, who's operating this? And uh, to that end, uh, interleaving the information in the an existing data stream uh, would be, as uh, Dan was citing, you know, low cost from our perspective and would be able to embed it in existing uh, bandwidth. Um, one yeah, of the ideas, oh, go ahead. I feel go ahead, go ahead, bud. No, no. I was just saying, like the the thing with the uh, uh, um, required to all have OSD, that would be uh, nothing substantially different that we're going to be flying, and that uh, it that's why I kind of thought it would be a good idea because if you have OSD, all you have to do put in on the OSD, they look it up, they can see it, and they can see it in real time. So that way, if there is an issue, you can. You know, it'd be something that it's traceable. All they're looking for is that, and you know, like a video signal just go in the area. I mean, within half a mile of where the person's flying, as long as you don't have like a a garbage ground station, which I don't see that being an issue. Yeah, I know I'm roboting probably. So <laughs> that's all right, bud. It's coming across. So. Uh, let me cover a couple of the options that we thought of. Uh, Dan, um, five, uh, 507, um, he had, his idea was to utilize the, it's called the Line 21 captions, right, Dan? Yeah, it's, I think that's one of the names for it, but it's easier just to call it what's used in old-fashioned TVs for closed captioning. Um, and his idea was to embed our... Uh, signals, uh, and it could be so much as your call sign, your pilot call sign, 
could be your FAA registration number, um, your ham license if necessary, embed that in the closed captioning signal. And that would be able to be picked up by, um, thank you, Dan, uh, be able to pick up, be picked up by simple technology that law enforcement could use. Um, and it would broadcast only in a, a very small locale. Um, and uh, that would, you know, if, if there's an issue in your immediate area, which is the only reason that we would need, uh, for the most part, remote ID if we're staying under a four foot or 400 foot altitude, um, that they would be able to identify the pilot via their call sign, their FAA registration, et cetera. Um, the other option was to embed um, a non I call it a non-unique identifier. Basically, it's just going to identify, kind of like Dave was saying earlier, uh, it's going to identify a category. This is a hobbyist um, drone. This is a law enforcement drone. This is a uh, commercial drone, um, et cetera. And um, it would embed those in both the VTX data stream um, and some of the data that's you know just embedding it in some of the extra data in there. And it would also embed it in the radio transmitter, your actual controller, um, so that uh, it will both transmit from the from the actual aircraft and it will transmit from your remote. And that way, if there's an issue, law enforcement will be able to say, okay, there's a drone over there. Let's figure out what type it is. So it would come back as a hobbyist or whatever. And they'd be able to see where the drone is. They'd be able to locate the drone. They'd be able to locate the operator. If there's a some kind of issue, they'd be able to go to that operator, have them land the aircraft, and move on with life. It's that simple. So these are some of our um, our different ideas for that. Um, what are your thoughts on those? And also, my, my only thought would be that perhaps the 5.8 band and 2.4 bands are probably going to be a little too short in wavelength. Uh, when you look at uh, cell phones, for example, they operate around the 800 megahertz uh, range. So, and, and they have enough, you know, I guess, distance to get them. Hang on one moment. They have enough wavelength to get them a fairly good distance, but you still have to have fairly robust infrastructure to support, you know, tracking something reliably at 800 megahertz. Like if you get it to 5.8, you're going to have to increase the, you know, the number of stations or towers or whatever it is that's going to be sensing these things. Otherwise, everybody's going to be off the radar completely. I think they're mostly concerned about sensing them in specific areas. So there would be a handful of sensors around an airport, and they wouldn't care if you're flying uh, in Class G airspace at all. So in that case, you wouldn't have to have the signal travel all that far. It's just if you're too close to an airport or something, then they would be able to detect you. Or somewhere else you're not supposed to be. Anybody else? Any any thoughts? I'd also like to say that I do agree with uh, what Gravy said, and I thought about that a bit in the past, too, with the OSD and putting your more information in there. And that's mm -hmm. another thing if we're thinking about going in different steps, a, a super simple step would be adding more information to our existing OSDs. We could ask Betaflight to add another placeholder. So most people stick their pilot handle in one spot. There may be another spot for a registration number or a third spot for other information so that you could rearrange it in your OSD how you'd like. And that should be real simple to get that added. Absolutely, it's not a bad idea at all. 
All right. So um, now, <clears throat> big part of this, obviously, is, and, and here's what I want people's thoughts on. What are your oppositions to remote identification? What would what would say absolutely not? I'm not putting this on my aircraft. Um, what would be your opposition to that, and why? Operator error on the person doing the tracking, not the flying. It, okay. it would be it'd be pretty easy to mix up a letter or a number, and all of a sudden somebody's getting you know the feds at their house for doing something wrong when they were would they weren't even out there at at that time. I mean, if you're picking up something and you're tracking it. And all of a sudden, one number is off. Like, let's take Gatwick, for instance. If that was somebody flying a drone and they were out there messing around and the RFID tag or whatever wasn't exactly correct, they they went after the wrong person. So it's, I mean, that could be pretty tough to get ironed out. And it might make some case law <laughs> or it might take some case law to actually get it working right, and that's really unfair to the and anybody that flies. Okay, fair enough. Anybody else? My first concern is that it would be an expensive piece of equipment uh, that would be fairly large and hard to install on our little tiny guys. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, um, they are at, at least depending on. Now it also depends on what type they. They do uh, require us to have. I know, in in terms of uh, ADSB, um, they do have uh, transponders. They run about five grams in weight, so they're fairly small and light. Um, but they do run in the two hundred, two hundred fifty dollar range. Um, now, if we go with existing technology, obviously that's not an issue. But um, you know, it it really determine it really depends on what type they require us to use. Dave. I was uh, I was picking up on the on the prior thought the um, uh, it, that's the notion that the so pardon me for uh, cycling back but the uh, if the operator error causes a problem and you get the law enforcement uh, come knocking at your door we would uh, the burden of proof then becomes uh, very difficult and because it were proving a negative and it's like no honest I was I, you know I wasn't uh, I wasn't transmitting my my gear wasn't transmitting you know, how do you prove that and uh, so uh, that's a that's a really good line of thought uh, in terms of operator error and then following through in terms of uh, any um, uh, legal action taken against uh, an operator but I like I, yeah the, the cost of cost of the devices uh, on the next next point uh, uh, key 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 thought and I, that's why I applaud uh, uh, Dan's notion of gosh if we could embed this in existing kit that would uh, that would really help us out. Any other thoughts? What else would kind of steer you away from remote identification? And on the flip side, what if remote ID came with some extra privileges? Um, would that help swing you the other direction? My, my first thought, um, since the very first time I heard about remote ID as a possibility, would be using it as um, what we briefly touched on a second ago, which is like a cost prohib like it's for it to be like cost prohibitive, like using it as a way to control who's flying by requiring a very expensive piece of equipment um, would would like just snuff out the hobby 
you know, or it has the potential to at least uh, snuff out a good, uh, you know, portion of flyers. Um, but um, other than that, it would just, for me, it would just be privacy. I would have a hard time trusting Google with, uh, with anything even mildly sensitive. There's an interesting uh, aspect coming uh, in between the lines as we're uh, reading and researching. And if we listen to the administrator of the FAA, uh, she's keenly interested in the United States having a or be a place for innovation uh, in with uh, UAS. And to me, that's positive, particularly if you look at you know what just happened in Canada with uh, their remote piloting aircraft uh, uh, legislation that goes in place in June. Uh, the European Union has a, quite a restrictive set of guidelines they're trying, they've just introduced uh, that they're trying to get a consistent set across uh, the European Union. Australia has just instituted a set of regulations. And so what we're seeing and seeing hints about are less uh, regulation uh, than some of the countries uh, around us. And certainly from the administrators on the top of the FAA, as well as Homeland Security, we're being told, you know, we want innovation to uh, to flourish. So that to me is a uh, is a positive for uh, for those of us flying in the United States. I'm not going to say it's a, a panacea, but it, to me, it's a uh, uh, at least a, a little bit of sunshine. What if, what if we used uh, any kind of uh, remote tracking? or whatever they want to do for hobbyists, what if we use that as a bargaining chip and we kind of get back some things that we lost that were important to us? Like, we'll tell you where we're at, but you're going to let us go back to doing this because there was no issue with it, but you thought that there was. And now that you can see us there, you'll see and be able to record data to know that there is no issue. Uh, I think that's kind of the goal. And just to step in for a moment, because really once they have that data and they can start tracking those statistics, then they'll, you know, we'll be able to start pushing back on that with hard data to back it up with. Um, and I also just want to make a really another quick point. Um, I'm, I'm personally concerned about spoofing um, with remote ID. Uh, spoofing becomes a issue and that can lead to potentially, you know, pilots that are not causing problems being targeted for uh, spoofed IDs. Um, and yeah, so that, that's just the thought that's on my brain with the whole remote ID. Because overall, it's a great idea. Because personally, me, I know being close to a military base and restricted airspace, it'd be nice to let them know that I'm not in their airspace. So I am actually for remote, remote ID. It just, you know, it's going to be interesting and kind of problematic to actually implement it at a wide scale. I would be concerned about the same thing, and it also applies to the regulations about having your registration number on the outside of your drone. Like, what's to stop someone from grabbing your registration number, putting it on their own one? That, that's my point. And then you also have the issue with bad actors not even using either or. And if they are going to use either or, they're just going to start spoofing other known good identities in the, in the sky. I'd also be concerned that it's transmit only and certainly no receive, because that's the slippery slope. Yeah, there's definitely been discussion on there with remote ID of having it be able to take your 
aircraft out of the sky and control it and tell it to land and all that stuff too, which we definitely wouldn't be in favor right. of. Absolutely. It's probably not. more dangerous than not controlling it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if they're worried about people ditching their quads into a group of people, why not let somebody else do it that can't see what we're even looking at? And while we're going 99.9 .9 miles an hour at 399 feet yet, like just kill it and let let that sharp carbon drop wherever. I mean, it'll it will wind up happening if if we have you know receive data, not just transmit. Those are all fair points. Uh, definitely, I I hadn't personally thought of the spoofing, Zoe. So thank you for bringing that up. That's definitely a a key point. Um, I think that. You know, going back to, you know, using remote ID as a bargaining chip, yeah, I think, you know, using that to get back some things like maybe being able to go into a different class of airspace or being able to fly in different, you know, better locations or beyond visual line of sight or, you know, whatever the case may be or long range, long range FPP for Christ's sakes, you know, these are all things that um, we all want to do and that we all want to experience but you know right now you know regulations prohibit because you know so i think we can use that i think it can be used and that's kind of where i was going with you know if there were added benefits to using it you know what would you be in favor of it so and to that end that that's where i see the the faa is making 107 more attractive so you make it more attractive more you know now so they've got the uh one of the one of the documents they've issued is flying at night and flying over people and right now if you're a 107 pilot you need a waiver for both of those as a lot of folks here know and so no waiver required uh, for either of those instances but you have to be a 107 uh, pilot and so that's where, I, to me, the handwriting is, hmm, if this is feeling like they want all the hobbyists to migrate eventually to uh, 107 status. And so that, that's one of the things that we, we'd like to, uh, to push back on and say, well, you know, we have three, Section 349 where a responsible group of hobbyists and, you know, we've, we've got, you know, everything that you've been asking for, a, uh, an exam, a, a knowledge exam, a, a set of safety guidelines, a code of conduct. You know, so we're, you know, we want to approach this in a, in a rational manner to be able to negotiate and uh, uh, describe what is sensible uh, for FPV. So on that same vein um, and kind of, uh, coming up to the end of our hour here and if we need to go longer we will but i want to make sure and hit everything um i did post on the fpvfc facebook site and then the ama did post it i posted it yesterday um faa posted it today or sorry faa posted it today as did the ama on requiring um your registration number on the outside of your drone now, for most of us who fly carbon and everything's external anyway, um, if you've been doing this, you know, you're, I mean, it's not a big deal, but um, they are requiring it to be on the external visible side so that they don't have to um, pretty much touch your drone or, uh, or touch your aircraft or, um, 
open up a battery compartment or whatever the case may be to find your registration number. And they're doing this, uh, according to them, as a safety measure for first responders. Um, so I am going to drop that real quick into the thing. Now, keep in mind, they're calling this an interim final, final rule, uh, which means that it's not so much final but they have opened it up for comments for the next 30 days, um, which that will end on March 15th, um, in which they'll accept any public comments on the issue. Uh, so if you feel like there's something you want to say about that, then uh, the link I posted will take you right to their website. And I believe, let me see. No, I think that's it on that. Now, the other thing it doesn't mention is what, uh, how it needs to be marked or uh, in terms of size or um, perfect location or anything like that. But there is, and I'm going to post that real quick too. Um, so, so that's a different difference from, they must have updated it from yesterday. Yesterday, they said there's no no peri uh, comment period and this will be instituted in 10 days. Now, now the FAA is soliciting input for 30? For 30 days. Interesting. They must have gotten a couple of phone calls. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't have a very good track record of meeting up with their uh, deadlines either. Mm -hmm. So it does go live uh, 10 days from now. So we'll be on the, I believe it goes live on the 23rd. Um, but they are accepting comments on it until March 15th. So. Oh, okay. Um, if that clears things up, the second link I posted there was a, where it needs to be, how it needs to be displayed and, uh, where, um, so exclude the, uh, second or the, if you're in that link, exclude par part, the last part of uh, section C there, uh, cause it cannot be any longer in an enclosed compartment. It has to be on the outside external portion of your aircraft. So, um, there you go. Uh, all it says is it has to be legible um, and must be affixed to the aircraft by any means necessary to ensure that remains affixed for the duration of each operation. Personally, I use a dyno label maker, put my, my FAA registration number on it and stick it to the undercarriage of my quad, but that's just me, so. Yeah, I had some wise guys at an AMA club uh, t tonight talking about uh, using uh, infrared, and uh, they were getting all sorts of cute. So, but I think the, uh, you know, to me, it's not much of a not much of a difference from uh, what was in place that allowed, you know, that asked for the uh, registration number to be somewhere on the, on the craft. Uh, just, you know, it was possible to be inside a, a compartment that didn't require tools, and that's what they've changed. Yeah, and I think I mean honestly, the the only part that that really kind of bugs me is those that that reproduce like uh, historical, you know, specific you know model aircraft or stuff like that, and now they have to mar it up with their FAA registration number. But I mean, beyond that, I I don't see it as a huge deal. I don't know if anybody else does. I there were a couple comments in the Facebook that they weren't going to do it. I get that. I just wouldn't want to be caught without it. I think. I agree. It's really not a big deal, but their justification for it seems a little bit of a stretch, in my opinion. Agreed. And to and to Zoe's point on uh, it's a, and to yours as well, Dan. You know, like, oh, I'll just take a picture of this, and then this will be uh, this will be the FAA tag I'm going to use. And that's like eh, a little too easy. 
So um, I'm going to kind of wind it down. Is there any, are there any questions that anybody has? And it could be related to anything, could be related to the topic, could be related to the FPVFC, um, anything that I or we can answer for you. I just want to say it's been a while since I've been in one of these meetings, and it's good to hear about like all the ideas instead of just sitting around and talking about money. So you guys are doing awesome. Thank you. Oh, believe me, we got a lot of stuff coming, and hopefully uh, we can definitely show the value of that stuff to you guys, to the community. Um, we've been hard, hard, hard at work uh, getting all this stuff put together. So. Nice. I just, I just wanted to say thanks. I hope that came across correctly and by what I meant. <laughs> Absolutely. It sure Thank did. You. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. So if your, if your quad is under 250 grams uh, and that's all you fly, then no, you don't need to register and no, you don't need to, uh, Put your obviously if you're not registering you won't have a registration number um so uh no if it's under the 250 grand limit uh for registration obviously not no you won't have to so the under 250 gram is going to be more popular than it is today that's the uh the limit a weight limit that um canada has selected it's a weight limit that the and i get it mass limit that the uh, european union has selected and it's also uh, the faa has picked up on the 250 gram uh, as a category one category two category three split so those of you a little more technically uh, inclined there's a, um, a kinetic energy threshold for category two and three the heavier um, uh, uh, drones or UAVs, UASs, and 250 gets underneath that. So there is no kinetic energy uh, threshold. It's 11 foot-pounds for uh, uh, the first category two, which is uh, above uh, 250 grams. So that's going to be a magical number around the world. So I think we can expect some more innovation in that uh, space. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's coming. And I know late it's really exploded that the uh, micro quads and personally i am building a micro wing right now um so you know different stuff to to test out what we can do with smaller and lighter so um go ahead dave <laughs> no, i was just i was just just chuckling with good comments on the uh, on the chat i love it so, um, well, if there's no other questions, uh, I am going to wrap this up now. I'm going to have uh, Stymie is going to drop our uh, social media channels. So both fa all Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. We are going to be pushing announcements to all of those. So whatever your poison of choice is with social media, um, keep a watch on those. Um, we are going to be doing these meetings. As of right now, we're going to keep it to Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, and we will be holding one next week as well. And, um, yeah, I think that's about it. Dave? Nothing else. Uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, I think you get a, a tone of the philosophy we're, we're adopting to uh, try to both be uh, benevolent and collaborative, uh, benevolent with our FPV community and collaborative with the FAA 
And that's the uh, negotiating uh, tactic we were, were looking to try to take. So I didn't, that seemed to uh, resonate uh, with this group. And uh, thank you very much. So uh, before I wrap up, a couple of, of things that we are working on. We are going to revamp this Discord channel. Uh, we're going to open it up a little bit. Um, so it's not just rules, regulations, safety guidelines, all that kind of stuff. We're going to open it up as a kind of, it's it's going to kind of act as our, our forums uh, that we can um, utilize, that anybody can utilize um, to come in here and discuss. I know there's a lot of Discord channels out there. I know um, that there's places that everybody likes to go for their questions. We want to kind of turn this into a resource for everybody. So look for a little bit of renovation happening in the near future. Um, and uh, feel free to hit me up, hit uh, Stymie up, Dave up, any of us up if you have any questions. Um, Stymie's got... Uh, uh, something in the chat. Uh, which do you prefer, Discord or Twitch? Would you prefer these were video streams? Is it easier for you guys to get on Twitch? Is Discord working for you guys? If you want to do uh, video meetings, I have the UFDA crew uh, Zoom account, and I pay for it, so we can always use that. I can screen cap it and export it to wherever you want, as long as there's a stream key. Okay. That's definitely an option. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you offering that. No problem. It works on mobile. It works on, you know, PC and Mac. Um, no app needed unless you're the host. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, Stephanie, take take note on that and uh, see what we can work out with that. <clears throat> Dave, anything else, bud? Nothing else for me. Thank you. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Feel free to reach out to us if you guys need anything or you have questions or you just want to chat. All right. Have a great night, guys. Thanks, everyone. See you later. Love it, love it, dub, dub. <laughs> Bye, guys. Night, you guys.